You're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Dina. In every single marathon that I have run, every single one all over the world, I have cried when I crossed the finish line. When I cried at my first, thought this makes sense. I've achieved a lifelong goal. When I cried at my second, it made sense because I had the stomach flu while running a marathon. When I cried at the third, I was like, I think there's just something happening here. It doesn't matter how good or bad the race went. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. It's just like you cross that finish pad and a magic switch flips and I start crying. And I'm not really a crying type of person. I cry like a couple times a year tops. So it's like, I could tell myself it's because physiologically I'm exhausted and I'm in pain and this whole thing, but I know that I'm also crying in that moment because of a sort of emotional overload from this feeling of like, until you cross the finish line, you haven't finished a marathon. And then you cross the finish line and it happened. You ran a marathon. You are a marathoner. Even if it's your 25th time doing it, it's still like a Oh my God, every choice that I made for the last 26.2 miles to keep putting one foot in front of the other, it happened. I did it. And that's when the tears come. And every single time, it doesn't get old. It's still total system overload the moment I cross the finish line. It's like a, it's like crazy. It's like a magic thing. It's kind of surreal actually to be standing there at the finish line surrounded by all these other people who are feeling exactly the same thing you are, which is when can I sit down? Can someone give me a chocolate milk? And oh my God, I did that. It's like this thing was the dream for so long. You spend so much time dreaming about the moment you cross the finish line. And let me tell you at mile 20, that dream feels like a really far, far away And then it happens and your dream becomes your actual real life, a thing that you did. And I remember all of the things I did in that training cycle, the 20 weeks of runs and strength sessions and time that I spent with my foam roller and times that I woke up at 3 a.m. hungry. And I know all of the dedication it took to get to the achievement of that dream. And maybe it's not exactly how I dreamed it would play out. Let me tell you, I did not imagine having food poisoning while running the New York City Marathon, but I still did it. I still achieved my dream. And that moment of spontaneous, unstoppable crying seems to be the apex of this week's Parsha, not because anyone runs a marathon. There's a whole back and forth that leads us to that moment. It goes back 22 years in the Torah when Joseph is kind of an annoying little teenager who can't stop telling his brothers and his parents his dreams, which are that they're all going to bow down to him someday. And so his brothers are like, we got to kill this little dude. And then they're like, fine, we won't kill him. We'll just throw him in a pit. You know what? We'll just sell him off into slavery. We'll come out with a few extra dollars and we'll be solved of our problem. And then the brothers are hungry because there's a famine and they come down to Egypt where Joseph is actually in power and they don't recognize him. And there's this whole back and forth of bargaining for food. And then he frames his youngest brother, Benjamin, for a crime and is like, ah, I now have to keep Benjamin as a slave. And one of the brothers, Judah, is like, no, don't do that, please. That's where our Parsha begins. And they have this whole back and forth. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Joseph is like, everybody out of the room except my brothers. And he starts to sob. And the Torah says he sobbed so loudly that all of Egypt heard, which means it was silly to send them out of the room. But that's what he needed. 
And all he can say after sobbing is, is my father well? And the brothers can say nothing. They are too dumbfounded to speak. So it's not clear what Joseph is actually crying about. He doesn't say. The Torah doesn't say. And the commentators, interestingly, at least the ones who are on Sepharia in Hebrew or English, don't have anything to say about it either. Which means that the door is wide open to us, and because I'm standing here speaking me, to tell you what I think. Why is Joseph crying? What is he feeling in that moment? It's not a feeling of reunion with his long-lost brothers, because this is like the fifth time he's seen them in as many months. It's not like they had some apology moment where they recognized him and they were like, oh my God, Joseph, you're okay. We've been regretting that for 22 years because that doesn't happen. They don't recognize him. They're too dumbfounded to know that it's him to even respond to his crying. So is he feeling sadness over the years that were lost? Is he feeling anger over the suffering that he endured? Is he feeling pride over having achieved such a high position in his life after all they put him through? Maybe a little bit of all of these things. But I also imagine there's some of that marathon finish line, oh my God, it happened. I dreamed about this moment when my brothers would bow down to me and then it happened. They bowed down to me repeatedly, like not a fluke, a real thing, it happened. So the Talmud teaches that there are five things in this world which are a little taste of their most extreme manifestation. Fire, honey, Shabbat, sleep, and dreams. Sort of a weird list. <laughs> totally exhaustive. There's nothing else. <laughs> There's nothing else in the world that is going to give you a taste of an extreme manifestation but that. Okay. Fire is 160th of the fire of Gehenna, which is sort of like a Jewish purgatory. Honey is 160th of the manna, which is the magical mystical food that fed the Israelites in the desert. Shabbat is 160th of the world to come, the sort of like Jewish good place. We all end up there eventually in Judaism. It's one of the best things about Judaism. Sleep is 160th of death, and dreams are 160th of prophecy. So this teaching from the Talmud helps us grasp at something that is actually out of our reach. It helps us grasp at an experience, an emotional or physical experience, that would simply be too intense for us to handle in our lives. But it gives us a taste of it. It forces us to think, if honey is 160th as sweet as mana, what must mana have tasted like? If Shabbat is 160th of the world to come, how joyful and songful and full of loving community must the world to come be? And if dreams are 160th of prophecy, then the moment that we realize our dreams, we are living a little bit of prophecy. And prophecy is really intense. If you don't believe me, just go read literally any of the prophets. So maybe that's why we cry when our dreams come true. Not because we're on the happy, sad spectrum, but because we're really far along the intense spectrum. That we're right tiptoeing up to the edge of an intensity that we could handle emotionally. Prophecy in the Bible is the way that God makes God's self known among the people, which means that dreams are like a manifestation of the divine or the numinous. They're the way or the place where our lives most connect with yud Hey vav Hey, with that was, is, will be, and out and out and out, right? It's in the moment when our dream happens. 
But just as dreams touch the most extreme manifestation of experiencing the divine in our lives, they're also fully rooted in our current existence. When we achieve our dreams, suddenly they are not mystical and far away. They are right here, right now, in the moment where we want chocolate milk. If you haven't run a marathon, I think that joke might not land. (laughs) So that's very cool and empowering to feel like I am touching the edge of human experience. I am maybe as close to divinity as I am ever going to get in this moment when my dream comes true. But it's also maybe a little bit disappointing because we know everything it took to get to the moment that the dream comes true. We know all the sacrifices we had to make in order to pursue that dream, all the other dreams we didn't chase. We know all the doors that closed around us as we headed in this direction. And so in the moment the dream comes true, we also get to look back. We get to look back at the moment of getting to that moment and we might feel a little bit disappointed. We might feel a tinge of disappointment or regret for everything else that we ignored or deprioritized or chose against in pursuit of this one dream. So when I read about Joseph crying in this moment in front of his brothers without explanation, I see him experiencing this feeling of simultaneous elation and disappointment. This thrill of knowing that dreams come true and it happened to him. But also, he's still just him, living his same life. Nothing has changed now that his dream has come true, except that the dream has come true. And while I have not dreamed of lording over my family and friends, mom and dad, if you're watching, you're welcome, I have dreamed of my own version of success, and I've worked really dang hard to achieve it, only to realize that the world that I live in where that dream is realized is still not perfect, that there's still more to do, that there are still other dreams to be chased that wasn't the one. And the bigger your dream is, the harder it is to say, wait, there are more than that one. So exactly 364 days ago, I gave a sermon on dreams for the first time. And I talked about how I thought Joseph was kind of a jerk for sharing his dreams with his family. But it was also kind of inspirational to see him speak these big dreams out into the world without any sense of whether they might ever come true or whether they were even good dreams at all. And then I spoke about how we should all have big dreams like that. And I shared with you my big dream, which is to be a Peloton instructor. And that dream has actually followed me all year, several weeks after that sermon, through a combination of very serendipitous events, I ended up with the email for the talent recruiter at Peloton, like the person to reach out to to apply to be an instructor. And their email was sitting in my phone all year. But I never used it. And I've actually spent the last couple of months really looking forward to the anniversary of that sermon because it was sort of like a fun one to give. And it was really fun to ask you all to share your big dreams and to get to share mine with you. And I was looking forward to this one-year check-in, not because I thought or knew there would be any chance of that dreaming having been fulfilled. I had never reached out to the recruiter, so there was no way that it was going to come true. But because I knew that checking in at the one-year mark on that big dream would give me a chance to check in with my emotions about it. This week, I deleted the email address for the Peloton recruiter. It's no longer in my phone and I don't remember it. 
Partly because emailing that person always just felt like a very big risk, like a scary moment of rejection, right? If you pursue your big dream and then the person emails back being like, we have zero interest in you. Ouch. But also because I'm actually not really confident I want to chase that dream. I don't know that I really want to trade this life for fame and spandex. But I do know that I love this job. I know that I love being a rabbi at Mishkan. And I don't know that I would love being a Peloton instructor. I might. Who knows? We won't find out. Except for when Rabbi Lizzie texts me about how much they make. And then I'm like, bye. (laughs) As Joseph shows, and as I have felt at every marathon finish line, achieving a dream is no guarantee that we are going to be happier. It's no guarantee that our lives are going to be better or more fulfilling. Joseph achieved his dream, yes, but he also lost decades of being in relationship with his family. He lost the opportunity to see his little brother grow up. He never got to live openly as himself for most of his adult life. Exactly one year ago today, perhaps even bigger than my little drosh on being a Peloton instructor, the FDA endorsed the Pfizer vaccine against COVID. And it was the first sort of like moment towards vaccines in the United States. It was the first concrete step we took towards being able to vaccinate against this disease. And it felt like a moment of dreams coming true. It felt like it was maybe even a prophecy, a prophecy of a world that would be back to normal or different and not one in which we would be consumed with the pandemic. We thought that having a vaccine would be the end of that pandemic. That was our dream. We would get a vaccine and this thing would be over. And we spent a lot of 2020 and 2021 talking about how all we wanted was to hug our grandparents or go out to eat on occasion or sit together and sing in community. And we actually have largely realized that dream. We've obviously realized the singing in community bit because we're here. We've actually realized the dream we said we wanted, but I also kind of feel like have we realized the dream we held when the FDA announced that they approved that vaccine? Is this what we pictured for that moment? Not really, right? It didn't actually solve the pandemic to have a vaccine. So then I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole of whatever, what else happened in history on December 10th? And I found some very interesting things. December 10th of 1948, the UN adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. On December 10th, 1964, MLK Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. On December 10th, 1978, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat jointly accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. And on December 10th, 1994, Yasser Arafat, Shimon Peres, and Yitzhak Rabin jointly accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. Apparently, December 10th is Peace Prize Day. December 10th is a big day in history. And each of those moments, the Peace Prizes, the Declaration of Human Rights, they were a major global dream fulfilled. But we don't live in a world where all people's rights are respected And we don't live in a world with racial justice and equality. And we don't live in a world where there's peace in the Middle East or between Israelis and Palestinians. 
we are living in a post-dream world in terms of those accomplishments. And they were momentous and incredible. And we're not done. We're not done dreaming about the possibilities of a future that those things exist in. So when he regains his composure after crying, Joseph says to his brothers, don't be distressed about having sold me into slavery. God did that. God sent me ahead of you. It was God's plan. God sent me down here to help deal with this famine, to sustain your life and the life of so many. And listen, we're only two years into this famine. We've got another five years. So why don't you go back up to Canaan, get dad and the rest of the family why don't you all move down here and I'll take care of you for the next five years. So Joseph's childhood dream of having his brothers bow down to him, of having his brothers be beholden to him, it came true, sort of, or more than sort of. And he took a moment to cry about that. And then, once he'd had a good cry, he started the next dream, the dream in which his family lived near him and he could take care of them. And he started to work on that next thing. So when I think about all of those things that happened on December 10th, MLK receives the Nobel Peace Prize, all these leaders receive the Nobel Peace Prize, what were they thinking about on December 11th or 12th or 13th? I hope that they each took some time to revel in their accomplishments, to celebrate the dream that they made it to. And I hope that they woke up on a few days later and they started to think about the next dream, because that's really what we were rewarding. We, as if I elected the Nobel Peace Prize in 1974. That's what that prize recognizes, is that people dream big and then run hard after it. And I think they all knew that none of those dreams, even in their fulfillment, meant the end of dreaming about a better world. It didn't mean that we were automatically in a world in which everyone is safe, happy, and free. It just meant that we took one step closer to it. So we might not be looking for Nobel Peace Prizes or Peloton instructor gigs, but we do spend a lot of our lives dreaming. And we spend a lot of our time and energy going after those dreams, as we should. I, I, that's a good thing. My question is, how much time do we spend thinking about how we will feel when those dreams are fulfilled? And do we spend any time thinking about how it will feel to live in a world in which that dream is fulfilled for us? So roughly two weeks after every marathon that I have run, I have broken my own previous personal record for a 10K, which is about six miles. It's not because I was trying to. I didn't say to myself two weeks after every marathon, I'm going to go break my 10K record now. It's just because I went out to run and I told myself, I'm just going to run a distance that feels right at a pace that feels right. But after 20 weeks of hard training and a couple weeks of good solid rest, what was a comfortable distance and pace was better than what I used to be capable of. It just happened. And that's maybe the lesson that Joseph teaches us and that we most need, which is that achieving our dreams, it's not about achievement. It's about the potential that that unlocks. It's about the ways that we grow stronger and more resilient and more imaginative and more confident in the pursuit of that dream and in the knowledge that we did it in the knowledge that if we can do that, we can do anything else. So a year ago, I asked you to share a big dream. And I was so blown away and inspired by what you shared. 
writing a play, reconnecting with an estranged sibling, getting a master's degree or a PhD. So now I want to ask you, how's it going? How is the pursuit of that dream going for you? Is there anyone in the room who has achieved a big dream? This is a serious question. You have achieved a big dream. Oh my God, what was your big dream? Mazel tov. Abby has been dreaming about becoming a lawyer and is about to finish her first semester. That's amazing. For those of you at home who can't hear non-mic speech, anyone else like achieved a big dream? And you look like you're about to raise your hand. No? Someone in the back. Oh my God. Mazel tov. That's amazing. What's your name? Jen. So Jen wanted to teach in the prison system, did the training, and is going to be able to start that soon. That's incredible. Has anyone here decided to walk away from a big dream? You don't have to raise your hand for that one. We can keep that, keep that one private. Are you still working towards it? Are you still waking up, if not every day, some days, and writing a few hundred words towards the novel? Or reading the book that is going to get you into the class, that's going to get you onto the next career thing, or whatever it is? If you're tuning in online, feel free to share with us a check-in on your big dream. If you want to share with me privately, go ahead and send me an email after Shabbat. If you want to share with the community but not right now, share it in our community Facebook page. That's the kind of stuff we do want to see on the <laughs> Facebook page. <laughs> I want to end by offering a blessing or a prayer that all of your dreams will come true if you want them to and that you will be able to use the precious minutes of the coming year, all 525,600 of them if you get where we're going to get wherever you want to be, to choose the dreams that feel most important to you and to have the courage to do that. And I want you to know if and when the time comes and you need to cry about your dream, we are here for you. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, Tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at mishkanchicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.